Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. John Golub joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios here in New York. Jonathan Golub, the chief U.S. market strategist at RBC Capital Markets. We were just reminiscing about the evening of November 8th. You were here as we went through the results that evening. What's your sense of what's happened since market-wise? There was this swoon. There was this great enthusiasm in the markets afterward. Help us understand what's been through the, going through the undulations here leading up to today. Well, I, mean, I, I think there's two stories. The, the, the first thing is there was this natural knee-jerk reaction to, uh, to, to Trump, but then I think the market realized that these pro-growth policies may actually um, not, you know, may, may, may be much more important or positive than, than people think. But what really has happened over the last four months is that the economy has been really good. Expectations for corporate profits are, have, have been good. Um, if you look at um, market returns, the day before the election, when people thought Hillary was going to win, the market was up. And then after, the market was still up. So it, it appears the real story here is this is way less about Donald Trump and really more about an improving global economy and U.S. economy. And the, the, the reflation trade, you've helped us with the definition of that in your most recent note. You you note that you know there, there are so many definitions spinning around. How do you define those reflationary pressures? Yeah, we, we've been in um, this ultra-low inflation, ultra-low interest rate environment, and it's been really damaging. And it's been damaging, for example, to people who are in retirement or planning for retirement, and it causes them to do something really interesting, which is to save even more money because they can't get any kind of return on their assets. Um, while you would think that corporations would take advantage of these low interest rates, they look at it as a sign of the world being broken, and they do the opposite. They actually refuse to invest. And so, so there's actually a fair bit of damage done by this this kind of environment. So reflating and getting back to something which looks more normal, where you can actually get a return on your bank, you know, on a, on a savings account, yeah. that's actually a really positive thing. And maybe the big surprise over the next year or two, if rates can get back towards something that feels a bit more normal. Was there a Trump trade? As, as you look back at it now, was there a Trump trade? If there was one, when did it lose its luster for I, you? I think that there was probably a Trump trade for about a week. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look, um, the market had this vicious sell-off and stopped out really overnight, and then it, 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 it bounced really hard. But for the last three and a half months, most of this right. has just been economics. Mm -hmm. And we can see that by the kinds of companies that are, are driving the market. John, it's great to have David Gura back yes, with us. He took yes. his family to Antarctica. <laughs> and um, we got an email. He was like in Tor Terra del Fuego, yeah, and he right. got up to Buenos Aires for the flight back. <laughs> and it's long. With that, help us here with the idea of foreign investment right now. If I want to invest, seriously, not in Antarctica, but in Argentina. Is it, how do I express it now? Do I do it through U.S. multinationals or do I buy abroad? Mm. 
You know, there's, there's, Tom, there's a big difference between the companies that you would invest in in the U.S. compared to overseas. Um, Non-U.S. portfolios tend to have a ton of banks and old economy. And in the U.S., you, you know, if you think about innovative tech companies and biotech companies, so the U.S. kind of feels more like the NASDAQ is a bit fresher. The interesting thing, though, is if the economy is bouncing Old economy, these old banks and old industry tends to actually bounce harder, which could surprisingly be good for some of these non-U.S. investments. What's been going on with emerging markets? A, a surprising result since the, the election you've noted. Yeah, versus the gloom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at kind of the orthodoxy, or and the data proves this to be the case, is when the dollar is strengthening, you don't want to be in emerging right. markets, and emerging markets have been on fire. Um, it's really about a re-risking. I mean, what do you have right now is small caps are beating the markets. Riskier assets are beating the markets. Companies that are um, more volatile and less stable and less have less dependable earnings are beating the markets. And that environment has just been great for um, emerging uh, market companies. And, and it's it really has been the whole the big surprise over the last three or four months. I was talking with our colleague Oliver Rennick, and, and he said that small caps is really where it's at at this point. How do you what's your advice on how to approach that small space uh, right now, if, if, if we're seeing that looked upon so favorably. Right, well, if you if you said, what are the real big wins? And yeah. all of them, I think, are going to continue. First of all, just betting on the banks as a win has been, if you did that, nothing else, you've got, you've, you've done unbelievably well. I think that continues to ride. Um, value stocks, cheap companies have, you know, have outperformed the market and then smaller companies. But the smaller company thing is really about risk. It's the fact yeah. that they are riskier, more volatile, and that's what's really been driving it, not the fact that they're small. Mm. How do I catch up? I, I, I mean, I, I heard this. He didn't buy the bank. I didn't hear this 18 <laughs> times this weekend, but I'm sorry, folks. I heard it like six times. The percentage of the institutional and retail public that hasn't made the bogey is I've never seen it. It's off the chart. Do you catch up with use of leverage? Do you catch up with going sexier, fancier, higher beta to use a Greek letter? Folks, we have to use a Greek letter <laughs> every day. Yeah. Sponsor, sponsorship. Last yeah. night. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they needed beta last night at the end of the Oscars. Help me. Actually, they needed a stiff drink. Yeah. Help me here with how I catch up. Yeah, you know, Tom, I don't think you want to invest thinking about how you catch I agree. up There's for no what you theory. haven't done. So what you want to do is just, you know, if you think that this thing has legs, I think that you want to get in it in the kind of, in the, in really what's been working the last few months, it's value companies, it's companies that are a little bit but riskier, it's banks, it's cyclicals. The, the arch idea here, and please, uh, you're the pro, I'm not, <laughs> you jump into the market knowing you could enjoy a bear market of X percent down, and you still got to get the market psychologically ready to take that hit if it comes. Yeah. And we've all gotten spoiled. Forget about whether you you, you you have a pullback of 2% or 5% or something like yeah. that, which is which is normal and natural. 18% bear yeah, market. But, but if you're talking about really big, you know, you know, 15, 20% kind of pullbacks, they almost only occur when you have recessions. And there's just none of the, the indications that a recession is around the corner are, are in place. So the likelihood of having that walloping pullback is just extremely low, now. You'd, low right now. You'd have to have something really go badly. Um, and and right now, from, from an economic and markets perspective, it doesn't appear to be there. Could we be missing something? We talked about orthodoxy and how emerging markets should be performing with the dollar where it's at. 
Could we be missing something when it comes to forecasting for a recession at this point? If, if there can clearly be policy um, issues and, you know, if you have these border adjusted tax issues or if we end up in a trade war or if there's some type of a geopolitical event, they could be really disruptive. And I in the market struggling with how to hand, handicap that. But if, if you look even at the volatility in the market, the market's telling you that that it thinks the likelihood of those things is reasonably low. So, yeah, we could be missing. We could always be missing something. But the yield curve, the, you know, the difference between a long dated bond and something that's near, you know, short dated, um, it's steep. That's a sign that you're not likely to have a recession. Um, you know, in the employment uh, market, we're, we're creating lots of jobs. That's not something you have as you're you know, moving towards a recession. Wages are rising steadily. That's not something that has housing activity. You know, if you made a list of the dozen things you want to see to tell you that recessions aren't around the corner, you know, 10 of the 12 are telling you, or 12 of the 12 are telling you that everything's fine. Yeah. You and I mentioned the banks earlier. You said be in the banks if you uh, believe in higher rates. What about the industrials? The president likes to trot these people out at a photo fest at the White House. <laughs> are they happy? I mean, Emerson Electric, the CEO, shows up. Is em are the Emerson Electrics of the world happy? I, I think it's a much murkier picture. I, the GDP ain't there. Well, it, but if you think about it, if you're a company, one of the things you want to know is where are you going to get your supplies from? And if you don't know what the border-adjusted taxes or trade yeah. issues are going to be, if you're Ford yeah. and you don't know whether you're making cars in Mexico or the United States, it affects oh, decisions and it's hard to make I, I'm glad you mentioned this. We're going to come back with John Gallup. Here's what I'm going to do, folks, because, you know, my theme this weekend, besides I miss David Gurus oh, so much, and like Antarctica with the kids. <laughs> are you kidding me? The, a sheet of ice is going to fall into the ocean. Anyways, I, I said besides missing David Gura, I said, I got to read about the border tax. I'm going to put out on Twitter two killer articles on the border tax that I uh, looked at uh, this uh, weekend. We're going to rip up the script big time right now. Greg Villier just wrote a blistering note on Republican realities, speaking about an epic war to come in the budget battle. He takes it back, uh, John Golub, to the Budget Control Act of 2011 which sets sequester caps and, you know, all the rest of it. What happens to your world? And forget about the politics of this, folks, pro-Trump, anti-Trump. If we just get delay, if the x-axis extends out where what we thought would happen in April happens in November, where we thought what would happen in November is pushed into the next year, if 2018 is pushed to 2020, how does your world respond to that? Well, first of all, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, you, you saw this with Mnuchin, who talked about um, hoping to get something on taxes by August, which probably means that, that getting something on taxes uh, is, is a 2018 event. Um, as long as we are confident that there's something which looks like pro-growth somewhere in the attainable future, six months, nine months, 12 months out, I think the market stays perfectly engaged. What we don't want to see is the process break down in front of us to, to believe that it can't happen. As long as we have that promise, a year from now, six months from now, all the same. I look at the Bloomberg. I pick up the FT. I see a lot of articles about how investors are very hungry for detail uh, in the speech tomorrow night. And you look back at history. 
State of the Union addresses, joint uh, addresses to joint sessions of Congress are usually short on details. They're full of sweeping statements and it seems like from Greg Vallier's note that Tom just mentioned, we're going to get a big sweeping rhetorical speech tomorrow night. How important are the details to you? How important is it that there be details in that speech tomorrow night? Okay, so the details are really important yeah. and I have zero expectations. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're talking about, David, that a, a president other than Donald Trump has been short on giving details. What's the, what's the incentive for Donald yeah. Trump to give details at, I, at this very moment in time? David, continue here. But I just had a, 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 an incredible insight went through my Monday morning brain. Forget about fake news. What if he started going on fake strategy? <laughs> You know, guys like John Gollib, fake strategy from John Gollib. I mean, that could be the, that could be the next frontier for Bloomberg surveillance. Well, we can debate the, the, the fakeness of it, but listening to the Sunday shows yesterday on, on Bloomberg Radio yesterday afternoon, there were a lot of conversations about here we are a few weeks into the first hundred days, so there's still time to go. But uh, we haven't seen great movement uh, in the House or Senate when it comes to repealing the Affordable Care Act. We haven't seen a lot when it comes to tax reform. Uh, how worried about that are you, that the, that the, the great strategic promise there was a lot of this stuff would happen early? I, you know, from a market's perspective, yeah. what's most important is that he give priority to the things that the market cares about most. And so the market doesn't care about um, immigration issues. The market cares really about two things. They care about... Well, it doesn't care about the New York Times. Yeah, either. and the market doesn't care about but, but the latest tweet or whether he shows right. up to, you know, uh, to a press event. What the market cares about is, um, are we going to see something on taxes? And, and it, frankly, if it happens at the beginning of 18 instead of the middle of 17, as long as we believe that directionally it's moving, I think the market's going to be comfortable with that. And the market wants to see you know, a pullback in regulation and all these things. Taxes is really hard, but on the regulatory front, there's a lot that it can do through executive order. Um, there, there is areas such as um, financial regulation where both Democrats and Republicans believe that there are areas within Dodd-Frank that can be improved upon. So even a modest softening of things like that um, would, would really be quite appealing. What the market doesn't want to see is an obsession on things that don't matter to the economy. As an investor, am I happy that executives from big companies are now interfacing with the president in a new way, that they're being called to the portico, that they're being called to the cabinet room to meet with the president, to have these listening sessions. Is that a good thing, that new kind of dynamic? You know, as, as I'm talking to institutional investors, they're frankly not spending as much time worrying about the, the latest photo op. What, what, they, what they're obsessing on, which they're not getting to your point, is they want to see the actual details around this tax plan more than anything else. And to the extent that they can get that on some regulatory issues as well, great. Um, but it appears as if this stuff is going to be um, take a little time. And, and I think Mnuchin did a brilliant job of putting August out there by basically saying is, I'm promising you something's on the come. Mm -hmm. Just be patient with me. And I think that that was a really smart move. You must be happy now to see Stephen Mnuchin in that job, to see Rex Tillerson confirming in that job. It must provide some stability for the market to have the heads of those agencies in place. Yeah, and I, and I think that there's a, a, a wide belief that whether you agree with their politics or this or that, that they're grownups in the seats, they're reasonable guys. Um, if you look at the when uh, when Tillerson was speaking to foreign leaders or when the vice president is speaking to foreign leaders, they're speaking with with a tone which is I think uh, well, pretty familiar. comfortable for people. Yeah. Lincoln, uh, we're going to run out of time here. Lincoln, here in thirty seconds, your view with Tom Porcelli's view. The are, are we going to get the GDP the president needs? to make America great again. Let's call it 3.0 
percent. Yeah, we have a shot at something between two and a half and three percent this year. But mm. but the real I think that what you're going to get is nominal GDP will be substantially higher. That's GDP plus inflation. Yeah, what's that do to real? Oh, we can't talk real wages. You got to come back, and we got to talk about real well, wages. Well, wages will be as up. Well. That's that, that's what people will focus on. Mm, okay, John Gallup, <laughs> RBC Capital Markets. Thank you for the time commitment this Monday morning. David Gurren, Tom Keene, worldwide, coast to coast, this is Bloomberg. David, I want you to bring in the next uh, guest here as we talk about policy and the abstract issues of medicine. But I just want to say, David, that every parent has tattooed to their brain the once a year the once every three years where you, you go. Where you go where I live is 525 East 68th Street. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's where you go when you need. There's that moment where you need to go with said child, and it's 525 East 68th Street, New York, New York. A man very familiar with that address is Dr. Steve Corwin. He's the president and CEO of New York Presbyterian uh, Hospital. Joining us here in our studios uh, in New York as the president prepares to meet with health insurance company CEOs. He's calling it a listening uh, session today. He's had he's had a few of these. Were you around the table there? What would you say to him about uh, what needs to happen to the Affordable Care Act, whether it's repeal, replace, repair? Uh, what does the government need to do here to right the ship? Well, I think repeal is uh, an overreach. Uh, I think that the Medicaid expansion has worked. Uh, I think a number of Republican governors have told the president that. I, I think the Medicaid expansion should continue and not be rolled back. Uh, the individual insurance market needs to be repaired. Uh, we have many areas in the country where there's only a single insurer. People are concerned about deductibles and premiums. But that individual insurance market cannot work in the absence, in my opinion, of an individual mandate and subsidies for the insurance companies. And I think the health insurance executives will tell the president that today. You've got a company like Aetna pulling out of a number of these markets, saying they're not eager to get back into them at this point in time. What's it going to take these insurers to get back into markets that they've left? Well, I think first there needs to be stability. Mm -hmm. Uh, You need to, to tell people this is where we're going. I think it would be very unfortunate if, with the House Republican reconciliation bill, the individual mandate and the subsidies were removed because that that will yeah. just precipitate this happening. Doctor, you're out of Northwestern and then Columbia PNS, and you've got this blending of being a practicing cardiologist with the actual running of a hospital. What do doctors and nurses want or think of this silly debate in Washington? Basically, we have non-experts experting (laughs) on the fact that if David Gurr's kids or my kids are sick, we need them fixed by the best talent we can find. How do you people respond to this debate in Washington? We have over 30,000 employees, and I would tell you that their response to this is when somebody's sick, you've got to take care of them. Uh, One out of every four uh, people in New York State is on Medicaid. One out of every three New York City residents is on Medicaid. And this is replicated throughout the country. Um, I think it's important to recognize that Medicaid insures over 75 million Americans. And you have to have insurance in this country. Access to care is not insurance. One of the great things is that Logan and Boston, or there's many other cities here at JFK, foreign people come here when they're really sick. I've seen it. They come through our airports, whether it's Cleveland Clinic or MGH or your wonderful hospital. How do we repair and move forward 
away from 16% of GDP or whatever we're spending to the proper balance of medicine. I think in order to bend the cost curve, you've got to deal more with preventive health, mental health. Uh, I know this is unpopular in many areas, but um, I, I am in favor of a tax on sugary drinks. You've seen in Mexico the, the reduction in soda consumption. Uh, if you can't prevent illness, you're going to have um, substantial expenses associated with caring for people. And I think that that is one of the things that should be kept with the Affordable Care Act. Just about 30 seconds left, too short. I'm, I'm sorry to say, but uh, are, you, are you convinced this is going to be a more participatory process going forward? A lot of people have complained that when the Affordable Care Act came about, uh, all the parties weren't involved in crafting it that needed to be. When it comes to changing the law, do you think more voices are going to be heard? There are going to be more voices at the table. I would hope that we could get bipartisan support on that. Right now, it looks like it is just mm -hmm. going to be one party doing it, and I think that would yeah. be unfortunate. Do I have to walk 10,000 steps a day? <laughs> I'd like for you to, to do Ready that. To go away! Really? <laughs> <laughs> the tall ten thousand step things you think is an is a is an adequate measure of good health, a path to good health. Exercise is great for the brain, great for the heart, and I would urge everybody to exercise. You are you are so done, <laughs> Doctor Corwin. Thank you great so to much. Have you. Thank you, With thank you so much. Presbyterian, please come by on a weekly. Oh, I just got <laughs> a message here from Mrs. Keene. Uh -oh. Have Doctor Corwin daily. Okay, <laughs> thank you, David Gura, Tom Keene. This is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. David Gura, this is very, very smart work on our foreign policy and the choices in the debates the new administration has to do. I like Trump's team of rivals. It's very Lincoln-esque. Thomas Wright is online, director of the Project on International Order and Strategy at the Brookings Institution, co-author of a new report, Building Situations of Strength, a National Security Strategy for the United States. And uh, Thomas Wright, let me ask you, first of all, about this president's national security uh, strategy. How different is it now that Michael Flynn... Uh, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn is out of office. He's no longer the national security advisor. Did we see Donald Trump's foreign policy change? I, I think it's highly uh, significant, actually. It's, it's one of the most significant developments in his first uh, month in office. Um, not typically in the way people think, though. I think what, 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 what's striking to me is that this basically denies President Trump and Steve Bannon sort of access and control of the bureaucracy to forward an America first agenda. So, you know, to the extent that they have very radical ideas about American foreign policy, it is much harder now for them to use the interagency process and sort of the White House infrastructure to push that throughout the different departments in a way they might have been able to do so with Flynn. So, you know, President Trump still has his views. Bannon still has his views. They'll do their thing. Um, but there's a bit more of a constraint there from the NSC than there was a few weeks ago. What's your sense of who is crafting and guiding foreign policy in this White House? Is it H.R. Uh, McMaster, Michael Flynn's successor? Is it uh, James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State? Or is it the president himself? I, I think there's, a, there's no easy answer to that because there is a structural incoherence 
sort of built into this administration. Like there's no um, there, there's no sort of unified position, and there will not be one because they're the views of the president and, and of Bannon and maybe a few others around him are so fundamentally different than those of the cabinet. So what we're likely to see is a continuing sort of struggle and, and wrestling match to see who comes out on top on different issues. Um, but those looking for sort of the, you know, the voice of, uh, of coherence or who can sort of sum it all up, I think they'll be looking for a long time because that's, that's not going to happen, um, I think, in a Trump administration. Well, we were talking to Jonathan Golub with uh, RBC Capital Markets, and he spoke about how he's listening to what the vice president has to say when he's traveling abroad. He's listening to the secretary of state when he goes to Europe and talks to our, our allies there. How much discord or dissonance is there between the message we're hearing from those underneath Donald Trump and those, the messages that we're hearing from the president himself? Well, there's enormous difference. I, you know, the, the vice president's comments in Munich are a great example. Like he went there and gave a speech as a, that that George W. Bush could have given. Um, so that that is reassuring to a lot of people who want to see a strong sort of U.S. alliance in Europe. But the fact of the matter is that if there's a crisis, say there's a crisis with Russia in the Baltics or somewhere else, the person who gets to make the decision about what to do is the president, right? So. Um, I certainly understand those who who point to Tillerson and Pence and Madison and say, "Oh, you should just listen to them. That's really what's important." Um, but at the end of the day, you know, Trump is going to have a major say, and his uh, personal views could determine whether or not the U.S. upholds some of these commitments um, or not. So I'm not no. fully reassured. I think it's a positive thing that they're saying the things they're saying, and I'm glad they're doing it when they go to um, when when Madison, Tillerson, well, and Pence go to these places, but it's not uh, sufficient. Okay, enough of the Brookings 35,000 feet stuff. <laughs> Dr. Wright, tomorrow night, if the president possibly goes off speech script, and let's say he goes after fake news, et cetera, all the other yeah. themes of the moment, if he starts bashing name the nation or, you know, the Sweden idiocy of two weeks ago, how do you respond to that? How how do our allies, what a quaint word, how do our allies yeah. respond to that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I think what they, they'll have two reactions. One is that it will, it will really, um, it, it will really underscore their concern. They, they'll be really worried, basically, that they can't trust the president. Um, they, they'll essentially, you know, think that if push comes to shove and there's a problem, you know, this guy doesn't understand them and is a wild card. And the other thing is they'll look for assurance from everyone else, just as we were talking about a second ago. The next day, all the other members of the cabinet will come out and say, that's not what he really meant, and, you know, our alliance is strong. And so there'll be some sort of assurance there. But these episodes like Sweden or Australia or any one of a a number of of, uh, examples over the last, you know, month or so, You know, they they point to the fact that the commander in chief is not exactly, um, you know, is 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 not exactly, uh, you know, upholding right. sort of these alliances and commitments. From your international relations purview, why is trade down? Why is world trade down, down, down? Down over like over the last few years? No, over the last ten years, last twenty years, last ten years. The growth rate yeah. of trade is down. I mean, we're not gadding it like we used to get it. Mm. 
Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think there are, I do think that there, you know, the, it will be important, and we say this in, in the report you mentioned, to look at free trade agreements and look at economic diplomacy and say, you know, it's not just about market access anymore. Um, it's also about distortions in the market, whether it's Chinese use of state-owned enterprises or currency or many other issues, and then to work with like-minded countries to try to address those, you know, problems. So the, I think there are problems in, you know, the global economy. Trump is not sort of wrong about that, but it's really, you know, how he's responding and whether or not the appropriate way to respond is by launching a trade war or a general economic war with China or Mexico, which could be catastrophic and counterproductive, you know, or is it to work, you know, diplomatically and multilaterally with um, with other sort of large and industrialized democracies to try to address these these issues. So I, I do think, you know, I do think there's. It's not that the concerns about the trading system are unfounded. I think there there is some there is some reason for concern, but it's not it's not in the sense that he's saying that the U.S. has lost out on these deals and it's just been negotiating badly. I think. Thomas Wright, you have a book coming out, All Measures Short of War, The Contest for the 21st Century and the Future of American Power, due to be published uh, in May. And I can just picture you pouring over the galleys uh, in early November <laughs> and the, the election yeah. result. How, how much did you have to revise in, in light of this election, in light of what we're seeing with this new administration? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, the draft was done before November 8th, but I had a, you know, they said that if the if Trump won, I'd have a chance to make some revisions. Um but, you know, the book really is arguing that, the you know, this age of sort of great power cooperation and convergence toward a liberal international order is is over and unraveling and that we're seeing the advent of a more nationalist and geopolitically competitive world. And so prior to the election, I thought the U.S. would be pushing back against that, you know, that the U.S. would be trying to stop that from happening and trying to uphold the liberal order. And I guess the, what I sort of corrected for was that actually the U.S. is more caught up in it than I might have, no. you know, than I had anticipated. But the basic sort of gist of the of the argument, I think, was was I mean, in some ways, Trump just confirmed it, right? Because it just really underscored that this was mm. this force was even stronger than I, I thought, and mm. I thought it was sort of the driving force. Uh, Dr. Wright, one more question, if we can squeeze it in here. Yeah. You, you have the luxury of experience in Dublin. Cambridge and uh, over uh, at Georgetown as well. Is there a risk that the city and the financial part of London could move part or all to Dublin? Do you buy that idea? Well, I think that, I mean, I think that they will definitely lose, the city of London will definitely be diminished. I think there's very little doubt about that. Um, the folks I speak to over there when I, when I go over to uh, for events in the city of London very much acknowledge it up front. The question is the destination. I think it's not it's not at all clear. It'll be Dublin, although Dublin is picking up some business. Mm-hmm. And, but uh, Frankfurt and Amsterdam, I think, are strong yeah. competitors as well. But, you know, the, the folks in London hope that they will only lose business that is specific to, well, you know, the passporting issue, but it yeah. could be more broad than that. We've got to leave it there. Tom Wright, thank you so much. Dr. Wright is with the Brookings uh, Institution. What we're going to do here is investment talk, and we'll do the political talk in our next section with one of our most popular guests, one D. Harrow, David Harrow of Harris Associates, and the Oakmark 
International Fund joins us now. Uh, David, you have had immense repair to your track record. And this is typical with international where you get a ginormous year and then you get a bad year and maybe you get a two good years and two off the mark years. What's the year ahead or the, the two year ahead view, David Harrow on international stocks versus U S multinationals? Well, good morning, Tom. And this view for me anyway, is always predicated on where we sit in terms of the valuation spectrum, where stocks are trading in terms of, you know, conventional, the conventional valuation, uh, indices that I like to use, like cash flow yields, EV to EBITDA. I mean, just looking at how businesses are priced and, and given what business conditions are like. And what we see today is they're about average price. We don't see panic fire sales like we saw during certain periods in the last year or two. Uh, recall in the beginning of 2016, we had a very, very weak start, a bottomed in February, and then in international markets got really hit hard right after Brexit. And to me, these were really, really good panic buying, or panic, there was panic selling given a good buying opportunity. Um, we don't see euphoria in the markets because there's still there's still people scared of what might happen in Europe with the elections, and we always have this with the elections. <laughs> um, but so what we see is valuations are just about average. They're they're not super attractive, and they're not overpriced. Right. Okay, so it's it, really folks, a stock picker's market. The hum, the humble one forgets to mention that 32 days ago you were named Morningstar's International Stock Fund Manager of the Year. And the issue here, David Gura, it's like the Oscars. You just expect that Meryl Streep will come up on stage. <laughs> Same thing with David Harrow. But, David, to the boom bust of your world, and you've won every award there is within this, do you just assume last year was a great year, this year's a bad year? No, not necessarily. What you do assume is that you can't look in the past, and you have to keep looking forward, and you have to keep the portfolio uh, forward positioned. And, you know, if I look at my history at Harris Associates, it's almost 25 years. There's been about three or four big bust years and about 12 or 13 big boom years. And to me, that's that's livable because what we're ultimately trying to do, deliver is performance over 3, 5, 10, 15 years, as opposed to just trying to match the index over week to week, month to month, quarter to quarter, half year to half year. And I think there is a trade-off. There is a trade-off between, you know, trying to achieve short-term performance and trying to achieve medium and long-term. And we'll take the medium and long-term any day. So if it means some short-term underperformance, mm. I'll take that if it means we're going to get greater medium and long-term outperformance. Let me ask you a bit about the uh, the Italian banking sector. We've talked about that a bunch here over these last last few months, and let me just get a sense of where you see opportunity there. There were reports here of an Intesa Generali merger happening. We've talked about the the need, perhaps, for for more consolidation in the banking <clears throat> sector in Italy and in Europe uh, more generally. Where do you see things headed there? Yeah. There definitely needs to be more consolidation in the Italian banking market, probably even in the German, the Landesbanken, which uh, the, the setup there makes it very difficult for any bank to make money doing local banking in Germany. But back to Italy, yeah, we're big shareholders of Intesa. And we were watching this quite closely uh, because this generally, in our view, it made limited sense. And management assured us they're going to stick to the plan, they're going to stick to their capital uh, allocation policies, et cetera, et cetera. And so 
We trusted him. We trusted him because they have a very good track record. The CEO of uh, Intesa is very sound. Uh, they continue to perform. They're starting to grow their loan book. Loan losses are going down. Costs are going down. And they're distributing most of their excess capital, which they have a bit of. And Tessa Sao Paulo actually has excessive capital, and they're distributing it, most of it back to owners. So this is what we liked, and we were our, we raised some doubts on this generality, but they looked at it, they looked at it closely, and they decided to pull back, which um, to us was, was a good sign unless you could really, really make a strong case for business combination because these things are littered littered with the laws of unintended consequences when you merge two big entities. There's so much work that needs to be done in combining businesses, and you just have to make sure you're really paying the right price and you have the ability to integrate and to manage. Uh, so it's, it's fraught with risk. So we're, we're pretty happy that they backed away from that. Jonathan Golub was here just a few minutes ago talking about uh, how well you would have done if you'd gotten into American financials shortly before uh, the, the election. Uh, is there still room to get into financials here in the U.S. and indeed overseas? Well, overseas in particular, there's been a little bounce. But if you just look at the valuation spreads, where they're trading at versus historic on an absolute basis versus other sectors, uh, there's still a lot of room, especially since we're starting to finally see in Europe, finally starting to see lending growth, you know, three, four, five, six percent. And that's better than not. And in the meantime, these banks have been very proactive at, at cutting costs. The regulatory burdens seems to have been the, the strictest regulatory burdens that we saw in Basel III seem to kind of be in the rearview mirror. Most of these big European firms are at or above their desired capital position. Yeah. So I think valuation is still saying, for at least for European banks like BNP and Tesla, Lloyds, it's, it's yes, you should be looking at these seriously. How did you respond to the Kraft, Heinz, Buffett, private equity, tons of money, Going after Unilever, do you own Unilever? We don't own Unilever, but I and I've looked at it. We've owned it in the past, and you know this this company does not have a good pedigree. I mean, recall it was an Anglo-Dutch monstrosity: two chairmen, two CEOs, two CFOs, two everything. And I don't even know if they've ever quite recovered from that. Um, you know, these big companies with all these brands, they just sometimes lack focus, and they become huge bureaucracies and you know to be honest i think maybe you know the 3g and heinz crap people would have had a, a good run at would have had a good run at unilever because i would guess there's a lot of fat to cut there um and they have some good brands and some good businesses especially in uh, health and personal care and ice cream we all like ice cream um but uh, you know, I'm I'm surprised they backed away so quickly. Maybe they're reloading, or because I think there's opportunity there for someone. When you look at the the VIX hovering around 12 on the issue, of, where does David Harris stand on the issue of complacency? What do you make of the VIX being where it is, and and indeed where it's been here for these last few months? Yeah, that's not something I I give a lot of thought about. But just looking at how quiet things are. <laughs> And knowing that, you know, for every period of quiet, there's a period of disquiet, I would assume that, um, you know, it's not sustainable. But, you know, you never know. If you look at charts of the VIX, there's been periods of time where it's been low for quite some time. And I think, you know, the market's kind of in a good place because what, you know, what they think is going to be better, more pro-capitalist mm -hmm. policy coming down the road.
David, let's talk about the politics. You've been moderately active in Republican politics in in Wisconsin. That was a state that the president uh, took right now. How intrusive is the Washington debate, what we're going to observe tomorrow night, the present budget debate? And with that, any delay in the hopes of Republicans, how intrusive is that on our GDP and particularly on our investments? I think uh, market participants have grown used to this political discourse for better or worse. And as a result, um, especially as as a result of various events happening and the impacts of markets becoming less and less and less. And so you're going to continue to see more noise out of Washington. It is a constant flow. This isn't all too new, but it does seem to be amped up a little bit. All you had to do is watch uh, last night's uh, programming on the Oscars. And, I mean, people are just extremely excited about this whole Trump presidency, one direction or the next. But I think the markets have grown somewhat less responsive, I wouldn't say immune, but less responsive to all this noise and chatter. And I think that what really market participants need to do is listen to the policy uh, and look for things that make it better for corporates to grow their profits and cash flow streams. You know, if that happens, they hire more workers. If that happens, they invest more. If that happens, you know, it leads to better business conditions and economic growth. As a bottom-up value investor, what we really want is for our companies to be able to, Mm. you know, grow, grow their cash flow streams in in a safe, sound environment. And I think that's what this whole rally has kind of been about, is the belief that the policies of the previous eight years have been very anti-capitalist, very anti-free market. And I think the, the policies, even though they, there's a little hair surrounding them, I think there's an anticipation that the policies will be a lot more pro-growth, pro-free market capitalism. When you are you listening now more to those? Uh, I, I was chatting about this a little bit earlier today. Do, do you listen less to Donald Trump and more to say Stephen Mnuchin, who's been on the job now for for just over a week? Uh, are you when you're when you're trying to understand what this administration is trying to do? Is it more useful as an investor to listen to those heading the agencies and those beneath them? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. Is you know where does the puck really stop? Because. You know, Trump, with all his roaring, he does listen to the people around him. And I think that was evidence during the whole, remember, the first executive order on the uh, immigration restrictions. And you, you heard the story of Madison, whatever, said, well, what about the green card holders? And they very quickly got to Trump, and he want, you know, wanted that clarified. So he does listen to people. Um, and he does have very strong people around him. That was one of the things that surprised me. Mm-hmm. I thought someone with such a big ego would put a bunch of weaklings around him. In fact, he put some very, very strong, highly opinionated people. And so I think you have to really listen to both, and you have to see how they interact. And I think, really, what one has to do is look to see if Trump is listening, learning, and reacting right. to his skilled advisors. And yeah. I think it would be a very good sign if he does, because he is new to this. Right. He is new to politics, and he has some very good people yeah. around him. David Harrell, thank you so much. Congratulations. Congratulations, David Harrow, on your Morning Star acclaim. It will be you know, it goes on the the Harrow mantle of the fireplace, the capacious and the, mantle, and the, crowded the fireplace mantle, in the West Wing. That's <laughs> where it goes. David Harrow with Oak Morgan Harris Associates, uh, international manager uh, of the year. But that, that's how it is, David. I mean, David Gura, um, I, I I find it in international. 
you, you know, you wait, you wait, you go, it's not working, it's not working, and then boom, you get one year or two years to. It's a it's a different cadence than domestic. domestic. Yeah, no, and I was again struck by what he had to say there about the the European banks. We talk about European banks in terms of how they are structurally and in the context of uh, financial regulation. But interesting to hear uh, yeah. David Hare there talk about opportunity uh, in the European banking system right now. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.